Well, it's great to see all of you here uh, today. I want to uh, just thank all the uh, leaders of the ministries that are represented in the ministry fair, even the crew that was here early this morning setting up tables uh, and getting uh, that ready even for the, the ministries before they, they arrived. A lot of work's gone into the ministry fair today, and, and uh, we just want to thank the Lord and, and thank any of you for your involvement in making that possible. Um, our ministry of the week this week is our ministry of deacons and uh, deaconesses. And I want to do a couple things here. First of all, any of you that are here in this service, we had some in the first service, but you served over this past year. This is a, essentially the first day of our ministry year. And so the terms of deacon and deaconess come to an end uh, essentially uh, the 1st of September, and then the new terms begin. But any of you that served as a deacon or deaconess uh, here at Cornerstone over this past year, could you stand? Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for your uh, faithful service to our church. And some of these same individuals will be uh, standing again. In fact, what I want to do is uh, have all of the, the deacons and deaconesses that are going to be serving um, for this new year's term to come forward as I read your, your, your names. Uh, and by the way, you'll see these names on the back of the bulletin, kind of a, a ministry overview um, on the back of the bulletin and you'll kind of be able to take these individuals and their names and associate them with the ministry that we've asked them to uh, to be uh, leading or be involved with involved in over this coming year. But if you're here in this service and I read your name, come forward and stand right here. Uh, Chris Johnson, Mike Martinez, Seaburn Boone, Joe Sapko, Chris Kidder, Daniel Bind Shadler. Ron Warkenton, uh, Brian and Edie Gill, uh, Dave and Mary Schilling, John Schroeder, Eve Hansen, Mike Strassenberg, Jim Ward, Kim Davis, Donna Vincent, Jackie Janoski, Lillian Warkenton, and Yersa Hansen. So these are, uh, and again, some of them were in the first service, but they, these are uh, our deacons and deaconesses for uh, this coming year. Do keep them in your prayers, and I'd like to take this moment right now to, to pray um, for us as a body and for our deacons and deaconesses as they begin this new term of service. Let's pray together. Oh, by the way, before we do that, can we have Tori Dazel come down also? Not, not a deacon or deaconess necessarily, but she's leaving today at 11 p.m. to go to Nepal. And um, she um, is going to be gone for nine months um, working with the missionary family there that's been involved in Bible translation and also doing various things to make uh, the Bible translation more readable and accessible to the people of Nepal, teaching them how to read uh, and so forth. But Tori is going to be uh, ministering alongside of them over the next nine, uh, nine months. Did you have something, Mike? Yeah, their names have been been read. Yeah, I read his name. Yeah, They're, they've all been read. Um, well, let's let's go ahead and pray together and um, just ask the Lord's blessing on the ministry of all these individuals.
Lord, we thank you uh, for these individuals represented here. So many people in our church are such faithful servants and the people standing before us are among them. Um, We just thank you, Lord, for their willingness to serve you, to serve your precious people and to serve your purposes here at Cornerstone over the length of this coming uh, year. Uh, Lord, we just ask on their behalf that you would cause these men and women to be daily full of the spirit, to be daily full of wisdom. We would ask that you would grant them favor, Lord, with those that they will be leading and ministering to and also ministering alongside of. We ask, Lord, that you would flood their minds with creativity in their roles, that you would fill their hearts with passion for the ministry that they are engaged in. Lord, we ask that you would cause your exceedingly great power to be streaming ever towards and into them day by day that they might be able to perform their roles with excellence and do right by your people. We ask, Lord, that you would accomplish great things through them and great things would be accomplished through their ministry in the name of Jesus. Lord, prosper their way in their homes and in the church and in their ministries that they're involved in. We ask, Lord, that you would go ahead of these men and women, be with them, be behind them, be to their right and be to their left. Lord, surround them with your loving kindness, your faithfulness, your power, your provision, your wisdom in absolute abundance, Lord, as they seek to do uh, your work. Everything I've just asked, Lord, for these men and women up here, we, we ask for ourselves also. We need you, Lord. We need you to show up or all of the ministries we engage in are absolutely meaningless. You must show up and you must be the one who does the work. And so we ask, Lord, that you would make your presence very strongly felt during this ministry year that begins today and do such a great work in our midst, so mighty and so powerful that no one will ever accuse us of having done it, that all will know that this is the work of God and God is here in our midst. And we just ask these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Well, you guys may be seated. Uh, There is one more person that we want to recognize. Um, John Esaturian has um, been our sound guy. uh, And all of you have been benefiting from his ministry uh, week by week uh, over essentially the last decade. He served as uh, for two years uh, as an assistant kind of to Calvin Skelly. Uh, Some of you will recall. Uh, who was our sound man, audio-visual guy at the time. And then over the last eight years, John has basically um, handled the ministry and overseen it. And uh, I don't know if you guys appreciate the work that is involved. Every Wednesday night, he's had to be here um, uh, doing the, uh, working with the worship team and, and so forth. And uh, every Sunday from 6 o'clock basically to 1 o'clock, he's here. Uh, without without fail and uh, we have so much appreciated John's ministry we've seen him grow over that length of time one of the great things about being the leader of the sound ministry is that there's ample opportunities for growth and sanctification and uh, we have seen um, uh, many of those and and John you've blossomed uh, beautifully through that time and we really appreciate your ministry uh, to us and by the way, just to say thank you to John, we have a gift for him. I'm going to have him come up and get it in a, in a moment. And the first, uh, it, it's a groundbreaking book that's come out, and it's called A Gospel Primer for Christians. 
and it's a signed copy of the primer uh, by the author of the book. And uh, it gets even better than that. Um, there are a couple bookmarks that are in this this book that, John, you will be able to use up until November the 22nd. Uh, because on that day, there is a game down in San Diego between the Denver Broncos and the San Diego. And the San Diego Chargers, it's a Monday night game and uh, there's two tickets in here. All right. Why don't you come up and get it? Let's give our brother a big hand. I'm available that night, by the way. (laughs) Anyway, uh, let me have you guys turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4 for our time of study in in the Word. Uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 4. We're going to try to to get everything done this morning. I I think I'm going to trim some things on the front end of the message but um, just given the ministry fair, the beginning of the ministry year, uh, I want to talk to you kind of on the subject of ministry. And if you want to give a title to the message, it is Help Wanted. Help Wanted. We're essentially going to be putting up a Help Wanted sign. In fact, many Help Wanted signs today, you'll see them outside in one form or another saying that we need your help here at Cornerstone. But we're not just going to say, hey, we need help, because you may say, well, yeah, definitely, you guys need a lot of help, and you may have an idea of how you're going to help us. But we actually not only want to say we need help, but we actually want to define the kind of help that, uh, that we need. Kind of like the sign I saw recently in the front of a, uh, a store. It says, help wanted. And then they said, we mean customers. Please buy something. Uh, that's they're not only identifying that they need help, but then they're telling you, here's exactly the kind of help we need. We're not hiring. We just need customers to buy some stuff uh, from us. We're going to define the kind of help we need because you guys know that it's often true that sometimes people are thinking to help and they're actually more of a hindrance than they are a help. Right. You ever had someone try to help you and they ended up being more of a burden, more of a hindrance than they were a help ever happened to you? Anyone? Okay. A few of you. Um, Not only has that happened to me, but um, I've been guilty of that. There have been times even in my ministry I've tried to help someone. With hindsight, I was being an idiot and was, was more of a hindrance than... Uh, than a help, and I, I regret some of those those moments. And then in other ways, I remember trying to help my mom with the dishes when I was in high school. She was in bed, and I cleaned the kitchen for her and put all the dishes in the dishwasher and feeling really good about my service and how happy she'd be when she got up in the morning. And I thought, well, I'll run the dishwasher while she sleeps. And so I took dishwashing soap, and I put it in what said was the dishwashing dispenser, and I filled that baby up to the full, and close it and let it run. And I went to bed feeling really good. Next morning, there was dishwashing. Uh, there were soap suds everywhere on the kitchen floor into the dining room because I had used the wrong kind of dishwashing soap. And uh, my mom was not as grateful as I thought that, <laughs> as I expected when I went to bed that night, trying to be a help, 
but didn't do it right, and I ended up maybe being more of a hindrance than a help. It's because of this phenomenon that uh, Thoreau, uh, who was often pretty cynical about human nature, he said this, if I knew for a certainty that a man was coming to my house with the conscious design of doing me good, I should run for my life. And often, I think, uh, we act in ways that would uh, bear that that out. So we need help. We're going to help you from Scripture know the kind of help that, that we need. In fact, God's going to define that. Uh, very, very quickly, if I can just give you a, a very brief theology of the church, and this is what I'm going to try to run through pretty quickly. We do learn in Scripture, we learned in our study of First Timothy, that, that any true believer in Christ needs to be conducting himself in the church. Paul says, I write these things so you'll know one how, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Throughout the book, he tells us how to conduct ourselves. But at the very least, from this verse, we learn that every true believer needs to find a local manifestation of the church. They need to find a local church and then conduct themselves in that particular local family of believers with elders and deacons and uh, men and women, young and old, who are practicing the ordinances of baptism and celebrating the Lord's Supper and they're, they're teaching the Bible and preaching the gospel and trying to live that out as a community. Every believer needs to be conducting himself in the church of the living God. You go through the New Testament, you find out that the church is a happening place. And there's so many things revealed in the New Testament. The church is the bride of Christ. Christ loved the church so much, he died to be the one who gets to clean up the church's mess and take care of the church's wrinkles and the spots and any such thing. We learn in Ephesians 5 that Jesus is doting on the church, nourishing and caring for uh, the church, cherishing the church day by day. The church is the body of Christ. It's the means through which Christ is accomplishing his purposes on this earth. The church is the fullness of God. If you want to experience the fullness of God on this planet, then you need to be a part of a local assembly of believers living in community with them. Paul says that's as good as it's going to get this side of glory. The church is the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all and all. The church is the temple of God, God's presence dwells in a unique way amongst his people in the church. The church is the household or the family of God. It's the pillar and the support of the truth, meaning the gospel truth. It is the ultimate platform or podium upon which God wants to put his gospel on display before the eyes of a watching, observing world. The church is also the place where God wants his glory to be displayed. God takes his overwhelming power and streams it towards a local church, towards us as believers in that church, because God wants explosions of grace and power to take place that will redound to his glory. In Ephesians chapter three, Paul says, now unto him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us unto him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus Throughout all ages, God wants to be glorified in the church and he wants to be glorified, not just before the eyes of human beings that are watching us, but God's doing something larger and more cosmic 
and its scope according to the teaching of the New Testament. God's trying to put something on display and convey something about himself to the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. And he wants to convey that message to them through the church. Talking about God's agenda for the church, he says, Paul says in Ephesians 3, verse 10 and 11, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ, Jesus our Lord. God, before the world was even created, God was up to something. He had hatched this plan and and God wants to do so much by way of glorifying himself and making this cosmic point. He wants it to happen in the church and through the church. And this is what we get to conduct ourselves in day by day. What we get to be a part of. And in our passage today, God is essentially going to say, you have a role to play in the accomplishing of this great and glorious, mighty plan that I communicate to you in my word. And so God would say, here's the part that I want you to play. And on the Lord's behalf, what I'm going to convey from 1 Peter 4 Seven and following is five ways that you can really help this church here at Cornerstone. If you're just visiting, here's five ways you can help whatever church that you uh, call your church home. Let me read the passage and then we'll break it down. Verse seven, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. Five things. Let's try to go through these this morning. The first thing uh, out of Peter's mouth uh, by way of telling you how you can really be a help to the local church that you're a part of is this. And that is be sane. Be sane and get into prayer. Be sane and get into prayer. Look what he says in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment. Literally, in the Greek text, it's just be sane. Be sane. This is the word for sanity as opposed to insanity. So it's like if you really want to be a help around here, don't be crazy. Be sane. And then he also says be sober. This is to be in control of your senses as opposed to being drunk or intoxicated with wine or whatever else there might be out there that would disconnect you from reality and cause you to be out of control. And so he's saying, you want to be a help? Here's what I need you to do. Be sane and sober, he says, for the purpose of prayer. Now, what's interesting uh, about this is the way this reads literally. I want, I want to give you a literal rendering of this uh, in, in the Greek text at the end of verse 7. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be sane and sober into prayer. Be sane and sober into 
prayer. It's just an interesting way of wording that. He doesn't just say pray. He could have said that. No, he says be sane and sober into prayer. What is he conveying by that? Part of what Peter is conveying by this is this, and that is that sane people pray. People that are connected to reality as it really exists, who are sane in that sense, they pray. People that are sober pray. Let's flip that around. In the mind of Peter, prayerlessness is insanity. In the mind of Peter, quite literally, guys, someone who is not devoted to prayer is drunk on something. That's, that's quite literally the idea that Peter is conveying. People that are really connected to reality as it really exists in the physical and in the spiritual realm, they pray. And Peter could tell volumes about a Christian based on whether that person prays or not. And if they don't pray, he says you're crazy. You're disconnected from reality. So he says you want to be a help around here, get sane and sober into prayer. And he doesn't just say pray. He's like get into prayer. Do you just pray or do you get into prayer? That's what he's urging us to do here. Think about the connection to reality, like why, you know, why we should pray if we're really sane. I mean, the truth is, if, if God could remove the scales from our eyes and we can see as he sees, no one would ever need to tell us to pray, right? We would just pray. Think about it. One of the things we try to accomplish here at Cornerstone is the salvation of souls, right? So we engage in ministry in order to cause that to happen. But there's a problem, and that is that the souls we're wanting to save are dead. And we can't raise them from the dead. They're not even able to respond to the message of the gospel without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in their life. And so if we really see that as we plan our ministries and how we're going to reach out to the lost, we're not going to think, man, you know, we've got to do this and we've got to do that, as if it's all up to us we would realize that God's got to show up and God's got to do a work. Also, you think about, you know, the, the spiritual opposition that you wake up to every morning. Guys, the, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, the principalities and the powers and the evil one and demonic beings, if, if we could see the enormity of their power and the ferocity of their intentions against us, I guarantee you, if we could see that for just five seconds we would pray if we were connected to that reality. Just silly illustration. Let's say that I, I um, put you in this big 20 by 20 metal cage and I say, I'm going to have you engage in a wrestling match. And so you're like, oh, okay. And so you, you trust me because I'm your pastor and you go in there and, and, and you're wondering what, you're, what or who you're going to be wrestling against. And, and I usher in this 800-pound lion with rippling muscles, just hungry ferocious lion. I don't even know if they get that big, but imagine there's an 800 pound lion that, that I have sent into that cage and then I lock the cage door behind the lion. Here's my question. Would you pray? Would you pray? Um, I think you would pray and you would do more than pray. You would get into prayer. 
You know what I mean? You wouldn't be like, Lord, thank you for this day and uh, help me, help me with this situation. Uh, no, you would be very passionately into prayer, right? Guys, that's just a physical lion that weighs 800 pounds. That, multiply that by infinity and we're talking the reality of what we're up against, against us as we try to serve God and be holy day by day, what we're up against in our marriages as we try to have a godly marriage, what we're up against as we're pursuing the hearts of our children and trying to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. All that opposition is aligned against them and aligned against our efforts and everything that we do that God commands us to do to serve His kingdom purposes, we've got all of that kind of opposition lined up against us. And Peter says, if you're not devoted to prayer, you're disconnected from reality. You're insane or you're drunk on something. So he's saying, get a clue, get a grip on reality, be sane and sober and get into prayer. He's saying. And you know what? I think Peter starts with this because this is first because it's the last thing that the devil would want conveyed. Right. Um, You know, the devil really doesn't mind ministry fairs. He doesn't mind Christians busy about ministries as long as he can keep them from prayer. In fact, listen to what one writer says, Samuel Chadwick. He says the one concern the devil has is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless ministries. He laughs at our toil, mocks our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. That's not to say that our ministries are meaningless. It's just we need to realize that we can do everything we do perfectly. But if God doesn't show up, then all of our labor is for naught. My favorite commentator says this. He says the devil cares but little about how many activities we engage in or how many organizations the churches develop so long as he can keep believers from intensive prayer. Without prayer, all the machinery is useless for lack of power. So we just need to have a humble assessment of ourselves and our inabilities apart from Christ, realizing that apart from him, we can do absolutely nothing, realizing the opposition that is about us and the real stakes that we're up against. And if we are connected to those realities and fully sobered by them, uh, we will not only pray as individuals and in our homes and in our care groups and in our Bible studies and in whatever other opportunities we have to come together. Uh, not only will we pray, but we will, as a people, get into prayer. And as we pray and cry out to God, God is a prayer answering God. And God willing, he will show up and he will do a work. And as I talked about earlier in the service, our prayers that he would do a work so great that no one would ever accuse us of having done it. They would know it's the work of God. So you want to be a help around here? Pray, be sane, be sober and pray. Some people kind of feel it's their first duty in a church to criticize. And they're, man, they're real sharp and keen and observing anything wrong with other people in the church or in the leadership. And, and they're free to speak about that. In fact, it's, it's their spiritual gift, the gift of criticism. And, and you know what? If that's you, uh, I'm not even going to try to talk you out of that. All right? Here's all I'll ask for. Can you give us equal time in the presence of God? Can you spend as much time praying for us? we got a long way to go. Can you spend as much time praying for us as you do criticizing us? 
You spend that much time praying for us. I think the rest will take care of itself. You really want to be a help to this local church? Get sane and sober and get into prayer because it all ultimately does depend upon God and we need to cry out to Him. That's, our, that's the first miracle. That's our first posture as we approach all of our ministry. There's a second thing to, to do to be a help at your local church and that is to go above and beyond in loving your flawed fellow Christians. Go above and beyond in loving your flawed fellow Christians. He says in verse 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. First of all, just notice the language there in the New American Standard. Keep fervent. In other words, stay fervent in your love for one another. That's a good capturing of what Peter is conveying here. See, it's easy to be fervent at the outset. You get to know someone and, well, this person's really great and you're fervent in your love for them. Maybe you meet uh, a partner and you're like, oh, this is the perfect spouse. And and uh, you know the way people are when they first fall in love with each other. And man, their love is so fervent. But then over time, reality sets in and they see the failings and and the disappointments uh, become a reality. And it's easy for that fervency to wane. And also in the church, the same thing happens. Someone comes into a church and, and uh, maybe they're fed up with their previous church. They come into a new church and, and they're like, wow, this is like the greatest place. I mean, I've had people talk about Cornerstone that way. Like this is such, Cornerstone is such a breath of fresh air and, and we love this church and here's all the great things about it and we're just so happy that God has brought us here. And, uh, and to such people, I feel it my duty on behalf of this body to say, just give us some time and uh, we will no doubt disappoint you. You stick around long enough, you're going to see our faults and our failings. We're going to disappoint you. Undoubtedly, we're going to wound you. We're going to give you abundant reasons to have your love for us become less and less fervent. See, Peter acknowledges that reality. He acknowledges the fact that there's much in our brothers and sisters and in the church that would seek to quench that fervency. But he's like, you know what? Maintain that fervency in your love. Don't let the sins and the failings of others cause that to diminish or wane. God doesn't allow his fervency of love to wane towards us, and so we should not towards Others. In fact, I love what Mark Dever says. This is a great test, guys. He says, do you want to know that your new life is real? Do you want to know you're a genuine believer in Christ and that this life in Christ is real? Do you want to know that? Here's the test. Commit yourself to a local group of saved sinners. Try to love them. And don't just do it for three weeks. Don't just do it for six months. Do it for years. And I think you'll find out, and others will too, whether or not you love God. The truth will show itself. Can you stick with a body of flawed believers that are all in their journey and there's a lot of messes and and failings and disappointments and yes, even sins and immaturities. Can you be committed to a local body of believers for the long haul and not only love them, but fervently love them? Keep fervent in your love for them. That's the command. Going back to the the previous slide, this, the word that's translated fervent literally has the idea of being stretched out, being put to full strain, uh, being exerted to the limit of one's strength. 
The idea literally is, is extend yourselves in love. Extend yourselves out in love for each other. It speaks of, of, of being stretched out in this way and extending oneself and loving others to the limit of one's strength as opposed to kind of slight efforts at love or half-hearted efforts at love or short-lived efforts at love. And you guys, you've been around long enough to know that we can be guilty of what you see there at the bottom of the screen. So many times we will do a few right things just so the record will show that, let the record show that I did this and this and this. And we'll make efforts and uh, those efforts are short-lived. Well, I give up. I did everything that I could. When we know that we have not, we've not fully stretched ourselves out and love towards uh, another person But that's what Peter's commanding us to do, to extend ourselves to the limit and beyond what we think think are the limits in loving our brothers. Look what he says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Peter understands that what diminishes our fervency is the sins of our brothers and sisters. And he's like, hey, I understand that. I get that. But allow God to produce in you a fervency of love that extends yourself through and beyond and in spite of the sins and the failings of your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And love them the same way God loves you through and in spite of and beyond your sins and your failures against him. He says love covers a multitude of sins. Listen to what one writer says. He says this kind of love... Um, refuses to deliberately expose the sins it encounters to the gaze of all. It prefers to refrain from and discourage all needless talk about them. It acts to throw a veil over them. Do you guys understand that? That true love covers sin. Um, To the best of its ability, it it shields that. And you don't want to take this wrong because... Um, you may be thinking, what about Matthew 18, where we're told to confront sin? We, do we just let sin go? No. But Matthew 18 actually makes my point and Peter's point here. Jesus says, if your brother sins, go to your brother. What's it say? Privately. So he's saying more than just go to your brother. He's saying go privately. In other words, you shield that brother's failing from the view of other people. You don't bring them in on it. If your brother sins, he doesn't say, go tell everybody else, go tell the church, pick up the phone and call your closest friends and say, you won't believe what so-and-so did. No, no, go to your brother privately. So as you go to your brother to address the sin in love, you're just you're casting a veil over that. You're doing to your brother what you would want done to you. And then if your brother refuses to repent, you might be like, oh, can I tell the church now? Can I expose it now? Well, Jesus says, Take two or three others, but only two or three. And so not only are you now letting them in on what that brother's sin is, but you're shielding it. You're continuing to shield it from everybody else. You get the picture? And only if there's persistent unrepentance do you escalate that circle and widen the circle of knowledge and awareness of that brother's sin. Oh, this this hits right at our sinful hearts because we all know sometimes it feels real good to talk about the sins of other people, right? Because it makes us feel better about ourselves. 
It, it, it can feel good to talk about the failings of someone else's children in the church. Can you believe what they did? I can't. It, it kind of feels good to talk about that because it makes you feel better. We all have that evil that is inside of us. But Peter is saying, stretch yourself out. And in love, like cover the sins of a brother while you're dealing with it. Praying over that brother and addressing those issues. Doing towards your brother and sister exactly what you would want done to you. So just a beautiful balance here. So verse 8, we're essentially learning that there's going to be sins and failures in the church that we're going to have to address when those are manifested. You don't bolt and get out of there and go find a church where there are not sins and failures. No, you stretch yourself out in love towards your brother's Uh, and sisters in the church. We need that from everyone in the Cornerstone family. There's a third thing to do if you want to be a help uh, to this church body, not a hindrance, and that is love others with your house and do it without complaining. Love others with your house and do it without complaint. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without uh, complaint. Now, the expression that's translated be hospitable Uh, is a combination of two words in the Greek text. It's the word for love and the word strangers. So, um, And the word for love is the particular word that speaks of the love of friendship. So it's like looking at someone who may be a stranger today, and you're like, that person will not be a stranger tomorrow. I will love this person and open my heart. I will open my home to this person who is today a stranger so that tomorrow they will no longer be strangers to me. To be hospitable is to warmly reach out to and welcome others into your life and home, including those presently outside your circle of family and friends whom you presently know well. At the bottom of hospitality, though it includes a hard attitude uh, of openness towards people, at the bottom of it, whenever this word is used, it always has the idea of loving people with your home, with your house, opening up your home, your house, to other people and loving them with your home and in your home and with the stuff that's in your home. Alexander Strauch says this about hospitality. He says, hospitality fleshes out love in a uniquely personal and sacrificial way. Through the ministry of hospitality, we share our most prized possessions. We share our family, our home, finances, food, privacy, and time. Indeed, we share our very lives. So, hospitality is always costly. Through the ministry of hospitality, we provide friendship, acceptance, fellowship, refreshment, comfort, and love in one of the richest and deepest ways possible for humans to understand. He goes on to say this, that unless we open the doors of our homes to one another, the reality of the local church as a close-knit family of loving brothers and sisters is only a theory. I think we need to receive that point. I was blessed on Friday. I and a few men from our church, we just finished going through a book by Strauch, Leading with Love, and we Skyped him and had a video conversation with him and got to ask him questions. And one of our questions was about how he implements hospitality in his day-to-day life. And I'm not even going to tell you everything he said because it was pretty overwhelming. But I'll say this. He indicated that probably not a day goes by that he's not showing hospitality to somebody that just people just come by and come in and they are able to love them in the context of their their home and that kind of 
that kind of lifestyle is something that, like I know I've got a lot of growing in as a church. I think we can, many of you really model this beautifully, but but for many of us, I think we've got some journeying to do to where I, I think we need to start reimagining what our life is like from this standpoint. To where, look what he says, be hospitable. To where hospitality is not just something we do, it's who we are. Just try to revision your life over the next month. Like, what if over the next month, this was just who you were? And you just, I'm going to love people with my home. What, what would your life look like? And I, I think all of us need to just start thinking and getting a vision for that. And then just start taking baby steps in that direction and just and being this. Where it's not just something we do. It's, it's the essence of who we are from day to day. Uh, this is the way the early church was in the book of Acts. The new believers, it says day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple and they were breaking bread from house to house. So they gathered in the temple, big group gathering and the rest of the body life. Guess where it happened from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God. Our dream is ultimately and this this largely comes from our study of first Timothy is that at Cornerstone, every member of Cornerstone will begin to see his home as an extension of the Cornerstone campus. Uh, to where we see our homes, dorm rooms, apartments, uh, condos, townhomes, whatever, that we're seeing where we live as a Cornerstone facility, an extension of the of the church campus. When you think about it that way, we are a multi-church facility with tons of square footage, Right? And if, if every one of us just say, you know what, beginning with my family, here's the deal. Our home is going to be an outpost for the kingdom of God, where God's grace, his gospel wisdom is going to be put on display in this home and then issuing forth from this home. And by the grace of God, our home will be a place of worship and ministry and instruction and outreach. Imagine if we all had that kind of vision for our home to where it's like, you know what, I'm going to love people. And I'll love them wherever I am, but I'm also going to heed this call to love people with my house, to love people with the stuff that I have. I will bring them in and I will love them. Peter says, this is, this is, you really want to be a blessing and to be a help to the church that you're a part of. Be this. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Just adding the words without complaint indicates that Peter gets it. He understands that there's cause for complaint when we show hospitality. One writer says these words without complaint add a sharp twang of realism. Then, as now, guests could overstay or otherwise abuse their host's welcome. It is a good reminder that hospitality can be an exasperating chore to be shouldered cheerfully if it is to be worthwhile. You know our biggest motivation to be hospitable? The fact that we ourselves are the recipients of an amazing hospitality from God through Christ. That's what the gospel is. We are rebels on this planet and God sent his son into our world and he suffered and died for our sins. God raised him from the dead and ascended him to his own right hand. 
And from that position, Jesus is now giving salvation to those of us on this planet who believe in him and acknowledge our own bankruptcy, repent of our sins, put our trust in Jesus Christ. And once he saves us, he doesn't say, "Okay, uh, you're saved. Just enjoy that. But stay where you are. You're not getting into my home. No, we then realize that the whole purpose of the gospel, the whole purpose of forgiveness and justification is to get that stuff out of the way so that God can now freely bring us into his home that he's preparing for us to live with him forever. We will through all eternity be the recipients of divine hospitality. And all the saving work of Jesus, all the forgiveness and grace and all the stuff we experience in our journey on this planet is simply what God is doing to ready us to live with him for all of eternity. Now, let me ask you, as God is engaging in this effort at hospitality, have we given him reason to complain? Have we? Be bold. Okay, we've given him multiple reasons to complain. We've given him multiple reasons to say, you know what? Actually, I'm done with this hospitality thing. I changed my mind. You just enjoy being saved and stay where you are, but stay out of my house. We've given him reasons, but he doesn't do that. And so here we are destined for this amazing hospitality for all eternity. And God's just saying, hey, I just, I just want you to do with your home the same thing I've done with mine. I just I want you to love. And you know what? As you do this, you'll be wrong. Your kindness will be abused are not appreciated just like my love and kindness are abused and appreciated by you yourself. Just be like me in your hospitality towards others. This is being hospitable is a tremendous way to be a great blessing and a help to what God is trying to do here at Cornerstone. We would love to see, because I think it matches the picture in the Bible, a migration occur from ministry on this campus at Linden Street to where, yeah, a lot of it still takes place here, but that there's a migration of a chunk of ministry that now begins to take place more and more in the environment of the home and from house to house. That's part of what the care groups are all about, but it goes far beyond just our weekly care group gatherings. We got far to go. We got a lot to figure out, but we're thankful for passages like this that kind of uh, stop us in our steps and help us to revision how different things can be as a church and in our lives from day to day. There's a fourth thing that we can look at. And the fifth thing will be very, very quick. So this is um, it's very much tied to the fourth thing. And that is, if you want to be a help here at Cornerstone, put your spiritual gifts to work for the benefit of others. Put your spiritual gifts to work for the benefit of others in the body. Look what he says in verse 10. As each one has received a charisma. Okay? So don't freak out, but we are actually, in this sense, a charismatic church. All of us have received a charisma from the Lord, a supernatural endowment. It's a glorious ability that God has given to us we all have received a charisma from the Lord. As each one has received a charisma, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the literally multicolored caritas of God. That word grace is from the same root word as gift 
earlier. And what is a charisma and a caritas? It is anything God gives to us that is free and it's not earned. In fact, it's ill-deserved. So whatever gifts or charisma God has given to you, you didn't earn that. It is given to you as a gift. And God says in the same way you've received that charisma from me, which is you've received it without deserving it, I want you to employ that charisma in serving other people and don't just use that charisma to bless other people that you think are worthy or deserving. No, it has the word grace on it. So you use that gift towards who you think might be deserving and even towards the undeserving because it is a grace. God is saying you're a steward. The gift you have, it doesn't belong to you. You're just a steward, a keeper of this gift for now. And I think a healthy way of viewing the spiritual gifts we have, whatever the charisma is, ability that God has given to you, um, you need to realize that gift. You might look at that and say, this is my spiritual gift. Um, But technically, it's not your spiritual gift. It's got the names of all your brothers and sisters on it. And God says, I want you to put that to work for them. God looked at your brothers and sisters. He saw what they needed in Christ in terms of grace and God gave them much of that directly, but God then looked at some of what your brothers and sisters needed and and he measured it out and deposited it inside of you. And he says, now I, I want them to experience the fullness of my grace. So you're going to have to go connect with them, enter into a relationship with them and use the gift that I've made you a steward of and put it to work on behalf of that brother or sister. So realize God has blessed you with a charisma, with a gift, and put that to work. In fact, if you don't, you're robbing the body. The gifts that are inside of you belong to the church. They belong to your brothers and sisters. He says now, verse 11, there's two different categories of giftedness. Those that have to do more with speech and those that might have more to do with deeds or action. He says, whoever speaks, if you've got a speaking gift... Uh, Whether teaching, preaching or prophecy, if it's understood in a certain way, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, or uh, I know there's different definitions for for those things, a word of exhortation and what have you. Any giftedness you have, whatever the name of it is that has to do with you speaking words, he says this, whoever speaks in the exercise of their giftedness is to do so as one speaking the words of God. Don't you take my gift that I've given to you. And go speak in your own words or someone else's words. I didn't give you that gift so that you could go speaking the words of Sigmund Freud to your brothers and sisters in the Lord. You speak my words. Speak the words, the utterances of God. So be a student of my words and let all that you say to your brothers and sisters in the exercise of your speaking gift be informed, governed and shaped by the very words of God. Whoever serves, in other words, their giftedness is more in the shape of deeds. Whoever serves is to do so as one who's serving by the strength which God supplies. Whatever your giftedness, even if you're making a meal to take over to someone who's going through a crisis in their life, you you realize that as you do whatever you do, no matter how mundane or practical the task, that you're doing so in the strength that I've given to you. Do it in my strength. You might say, well, it's easy to do this, Lord. I can make a meal. God's like, no, no, 
for you to do it with the right heart and the right spirit and to give that to the person in a way that genuinely is manifesting my heart towards them, you can't do that in your own strength. Yeah, you can make a meal, but you can't do that and give that gift in a way that reflects my heart in your own strength. He's saying, whatever you speak, let it be my words. I want the words to come from me. And whatever you do, you do it in my strength. And that leads us to the fifth and final thing to do to really be a help to this church. And that is be most concerned about God getting the glory for all he says and all he does through you. God says, there's a reason I want you speaking my words and doing what you do and the strength I give you. Look what he says. So that or in order that for the purpose that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God says, I want you to speak in my words because I want to be glorified and I want you doing what you do in my strength because I want to be glorified. I want my strength to be what's on display, my wisdom, my words to be what is used and is put on display. You want to be a help to Cornerstone? You need to care only that God gets glory. Put aside your desire to be recognized or get glory for yourself. Just, you know, all I care about is that God is glorified. And so if God uses me in some great way through my speaking gift, Lord, all the glory goes to you. If God uses me to show love to a brother or sister in some great way, uh, maybe at a time when no one else in the church even knows about this person's need or they're not caring the way they should, but I'm caring. And this person's like, oh, thank you so much. No one else is caring about me in this time of need. It's easy in those moments to kind of take glory unto yourself. But no, all the glory goes to God. Guys, there's no telling what God can do in this church and through this church if all of us will just do these things and care only about the fact that God gets glory for it. We're not worried about who gets credit other than that God gets the credit. You've heard the prayer, Lord, please send revival and let it begin with me. You ever heard that? Um, and often what's stated after that, or it's never stated, but it's thought, Lord, please send revival to this church. Let it begin with me. And Lord, when you do send revival, could you make sure everyone knows it started with me? Sometimes we have that insidious evil inside of us, and Peter's calling us to something higher and something greater, something far better. So help is needed, and uh, these are things that God is communicating to us that he wants us to do to really bless and be a help to this church. Let me ask you to bow your heads. We're going to take up an offering in just a moment. We would encourage you to give as the Lord leads you to give. And comments, prayer requests, praise items, put those on the back of the comment card. We'll pray over those in our staff meeting. Put those on our church family prayer sheet if you like. And you can put your comment cards in the offering bags as they come by in a moment. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for saving us and for calling us together. And then what's beautiful, Lord, is you don't just call us together but then you, you speak to us as a group and say, now, here's what I need from, from each of you. Uh, here's the role that each of you play. And you speak to us with such insight and such grace that is so tremendously helpful. Thank you, Lord. 
I pray for this church body, Lord, that you would bless all those that labor in ministry. Lord, show up. Unless you build a house, we're laboring in vain. So show up, Lord, and do what only you can do and prosper every ministry here at Cornerstone. As our folks leave this morning, Lord, uh, and they're looking to get involved, show them ways, guide them in ways they can be involved in ministering and even through what they see outside, ways that they could be ministered to and blessed. And just make us a richer and a more prosperous church in terms of our experience of the gospel together in community with one another. Accept our offerings, Lord, that we give to you also because we give them to you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,